Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fanville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on this week's podcast, Pastor Kirk will be continuing our study in the book of Philippians. If you're looking for a church, we would love for you to come and visit with us. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or give us a call at 479-442-4634. If you'd rather email, you can do that through info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, we are continuing our study through the book of Philippians. Pastor Kirk is sharing a message entitled Advancing Through Adversity from Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Let's listen together. Now we look to the scriptures for the presentation of the gospel, and we're in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. We are progressing our way through Paul's letter to this church, probably his favorite church when you uh, read how he writes to them in a very personal way, in a very loving way. Today's text is um, one that I think can give us some much needed uh, clarity about the way God works. One of the most misunderstood realities of the Christian life is that it involves adversity. Sometimes even suffering and persecution. Now Jesus himself promised this. If you go back and think about what he had to say uh, during the course of his ministry and then more specifically in the upper room the night before the crucifixion. After telling his disciples about some of the hardships that they were going to face after his death the next day, which they still didn't grasp that, he told them that they would be put out of the synagogues, which is something no Jewish man ever wanted to experience, to be Uh, banned from the synagogues, the place where the scripture was read and studied where God was worshiped. But he told them they wouldn't just be put out of the synagogues, but that they would be persecuted, even killed, and it would be because of their service to God. Now that really seems uh, strange to us that uh, faithfulness to the Lord would bring hardship and adversity. Maybe some of you uh, were converted under evangelistic preaching that maybe suggested to you that if you would just give your heart and life to Jesus, your problems would be over. Everything in life would be made better that it would solve all of your problems. That Jesus, after all, is the answer. Well, certainly Jesus is the answer. Certainly he is there to aid us through our times of difficulty. 
But understand this, that the Bible promises and Jesus promised that taking a stand for him basically would unleash the forces of hell against you. Give your life to Christ wholly and fully and completely with nothing in reserve, nothing held back. Give yourself completely to the Lord. And I'll tell you right now, all hell will break loose around you. But don't be afraid of that because all heaven's going to come to your rescue through your adversity. Jesus, after speaking those words in the upper room, even got more specific a little later in the evening when he said this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be caught off guard. I don't want you to fall away when hardship comes. I'm telling you this to keep you from falling away. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's in John chapter 16, not only verse 1, but verse 32 and 33. Paul later put it this way in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. They will just go on as though nothing is ever bad that will happen to them, deceiving and being deceived. Understand, while it seems like the world goes scot-free, you're going to have to face adversity. And that leads us, before we read our text today, to this key truth. Adversity, pain, suffering, trials, even persecution. All these are part and parcel of what it means to live a godly life and to follow Christ in this world. I suppose in the New Testament after Jesus Christ, you can find no other person who is more sold out, who is more completely surrendered to the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul was. We're going to read today an incident and a circumstance in Paul's life that explains that key truth. It's against that backdrop of hardship and adversity that Paul writes these words in the book of Philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. Follow along with me. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Now, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in faith, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. That last paragraph is a bit confusing. We'll get to it before the service is over, before the message is over. But I want you to focus in with me, especially to that first verse, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, keep in mind what is happening here in Paul's letter. The church at Philippi was started by the Apostle Paul some 10 or so, 10 to 12 years prior to the writing of this letter. He was on his second missionary journey. He had not planned to go to Philippi, but God used a number of circumstances and the Spirit's leadership to close some doors, open some doors, finally a vision from the Lord that got him into Europe and into Philippi where the first church in Europe was ever formed. Now, this Philippian church had been a faithful supporter for the Apostle Paul. They had prayed for him. They had financially supported him in his mission work. And upon hearing of his imprisonment, for he's writing now from a Roman prison, and upon hearing of his imprisonment, they send a letter to him inquiring about his, uh, his state, his condition, what his needs are, and they send an offering. And they send it by one of their church members, a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Now, I love Epaphroditus. I love his name. You know what it means? It means devoted to Aphrodite. Do you remember who Aphrodite was? She was the same as Diana, the same as Venus. There was a great temple, one of the wonders of the world in the city of Ephesus devoted to this pagan uh, goddess of love. There were statues, there were images of her that were awful in their depiction and in their lewdness. The goddess of love. And his parents, when he was born, these pagan parents named him Epaphroditus, devoted, they dedicated him to the worship of Aphrodite. But guess what? The god of love saved him. The God of love, the gospel of the story of his son Jesus Christ came to Epaphroditus and saved him. And one of the things that's most surprising is that he kept his old name. Now that seems kind of odd. I mean, if my name was devoted to, uh, to Aphrodite and I got saved, I'd change my name to Ed or something. Anything besides Epaphroditus. But I have an idea that it was a great opening for him to share the gospel. I mean, it got some attention. He could say, hey, listen, I was devoted to Aphrodite. That's how I got my name. But let me tell you what happened to me. 
And so Epaphroditus carries this letter to Paul, finds him there in Rome, looks him up, takes an offering to him, and almost immediately Epaphroditus gets deathly, gravely ill. He almost dies there in Rome. But he gets better, he recovers, and Paul writes this letter back to Philippi and sends it with Epaphroditus uh, to let the church at Philippi know what all is going on. And so this letter, interestingly enough, follows uh, what was very customary of the letter writing of the day. It begins with a salutation. It speaks some kind of blessing. Almost every informal letter uh, written to people from family members to family members, from uh, friends to friends, followed this pattern that it, it had a salutation, a greeting, who it was from. They put their names at the beginning of the letter, not at the end of the letter. It would say, this is, uh, you know, this is Hal Hall, and I'm writing to you about such and such. And, and so there's a salutation. There is a greeting in that, some kind of, uh, of blessing. If you were a Jew, you would say, shalom, peace be to you. Uh, if you were uh, Gentile, if you were Greek, you would use probably the word charis, which means grace to you. Paul uses them both because he is writing to Jews and Gentiles, grace and peace. And understand that's a whole doctrinal truth in itself that we talked about a couple of two or three weeks ago. First comes grace, then comes peace. There can be no peace without the grace of God in your life. And so grace leads to peace. And then he offers up thanksgiving and praise for these people and, and even gives a prayer for them that they would abound uh, in love for God and one another and that this abounding in love would lead them to a righteous lifestyle, uh, not self-righteous, but God's righteousness. And it would result in the glory and praise of God. Now, after he gets through those preliminaries, it would be normal for the writer to say, okay, let me tell you what's going on with me. Now, follow me here, because here's a real transition, and it ex exposes to us Paul's thinking. This is where he would say, I want to share with you what's going on with me. Let me tell you about my condition. Let me tell you about what's happening here in Rome. But Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what exactly has happened to Paul? What exactly has been going on with him? They had not seen him or had him in their presence for some time. And since then, what has taken place? So let's just step back and just kind of walk through some of the events of Paul from the last time that he was in Europe when he completed his third missionary journey in Corinth down south of Philippi. And what has happened over the next 10 years till he ends up over here, or the next several years till he ends up over here in Rome? You read about this in Acts chapter 21 through 28. Almost one third of the whole story of Acts takes place in the space of about three or four years. And these events, uh, 
uh, start off with Paul completing his missionary journey, his third one, with the intentions of sailing back eastward to Jerusalem, his homeland, his, the home of the Jewish people. Now he knows already there's going to be trouble when he gets there, but he heads that way anyway. After arriving in Jerusalem, he goes up to the temple and there he worships, there he preaches, and he is almost immediately falsely accused. And a plot is hatched to assassinate him by the religious leaders. Now remember of Paul's past. He had been a persecutor of the church. Remember that? He had been a very loyal Orthodox Jew. He was even a Pharisee. But he was converted on his way to Damascus. Now he is the leading preacher of the gospel. He is even more prominent than the Apostle Peter. He is the one planting churches everywhere. And the Jews hate him for that. And so they hatch a plot to assassinate him and so sincere about that plan that they even took an oath not to eat or drink until he was dead. Now Paul's nephew, we don't have his name, but he's the only family member of Paul that's ever mentioned in scripture. Paul's nephew hears about this plan and he informs the Roman authorities in Jerusalem what's going to happen. And so the Roman authorities take custody of Paul, not to persecute him, but to protect him from the Jewish leaders. And he is very quickly transferred several miles away back to the Mediterranean coast to a city called Caesarea. And there he is kept under locked guard for some two years. Again, to protect him from uh, the Jewish leaders. Now, while he's incarcerated in Caesarea Philippi, Paul has an opportunity to preach the gospel and to testify to the man who lives there. And his name is Felix, and he is the governor of Judea, of this part of Israel. And later, during the time that Paul is there, there's a turnover uh, in the governorship, and his successor is a man by the name of Festus, all right? Not of gunsmoke fame. And so Festus becomes the leading governor in Judea, and he has a chance to preach and testify to Festus. And not only that, but because there's a summer palace there, King Agrippa, even the king of the Jews, though not one who is a practicing worshiper of God, King Agrippa comes down to Caesarea Philippi and he wants to hear from Paul. And it's the testimony of Agrippa that many of you have heard evangelists making famous uh, in their appeals for you and others to receive Christ when uh, Agrippa says, Paul, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. Well, finally, after two years incarceration in Caesarea Philippi, Paul appeals to the emperor. He appeals to Caesar himself to hear his case. So they put him on a prisoner ship 
and he begins to sail westward with other prisoners back across the Mediterranean. It's the beginning of the fall, the early year uh, time of year for uh, winter to be coming in. The seas are somewhat stormy. Most ships are not traveling during that time of the year, but their ship uh, continues their journey. And finally, they run into a violent, violent storm. It is so bad, so continuous, that the scripture tells us for 14 days, the sailors could not eat. It was a horrible storm. They had never seen anything like it. Finally, in desperation, they jettison all of their cargo. They cut away the anchors, and they just drop the sails, and they let the storm carry them. It finally appears that they're not going to make it. They were going to kill all the prisoners so that no one could possibly escape, and the sailors were going to abandon ship. And Paul encourages them not to do so, that not a single man would be lost. And they are dashed against the rocks of an island. They make their way to shore on pieces of debris. All of them are safe, though quite cold and quite wet. They've landed on the island of Malta. One of the first things they do, as some of the locals greet them, was to build a fire because it was cold and they were wet. And as Paul picks up a bundle of sticks, do you remember what happens? The Bible says that a viper, a snake, a highly poisonous snake, the locals recognize it and know it. A viper comes out and bites Paul on his hand, and the locals say, it must be the judgment of God. You're one of the prisoners. God, The gods have allowed this to happen to you, and so you must be guilty. And what does Paul do? He shakes the snake off in the fire and goes on as though nothing happened. And so instead of saying, you were a guilty man worthy of death, the gods are against you, they turn around and they say, hey, you must be a god. And it opens the door for Paul to preach to them. It opens the door for those who are Christians to worship. They end up spending the entire winter months, three months on Malta, and finally, in the spring of the year, they reach their destination in Rome. And so Paul uh, is incarcerated in Rome, but he's not in a Roman prison chained to the walls as he was when he first got to Philippi and some other places. He is placed in house custody. He is allowed to live in a residence at his own expense, however. He has to pay his own way. And he is guarded every day by the imperial guard. That's the praetorian guard. Understand, these are the elite of the elite of the elite of all of the Roman soldiers. It's a high honor to be named to the praetorian guard. So 24 hours a day, every day for two years, he is actually chained not to a dungeon wall, but to an elite uh, imperial guard. They change shifts about every four to six hours, but for two years he does not know what it's like not to be chained to one of these men. So when Paul writes the words, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he said, that is what has happened to me. 
It's what has gotten me here. But understand, those were just the recent events. Those were just what's happened the last few years since the last time they had heard from Paul. For about two to three years earlier, Paul writes to the Corinthians, his second letter to them, and he says this. He was being, by the way, vilified as not being a true apostle, that, that there were others who were true apostles, but he wasn't. And this is his defense. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Now listen to what he says summarizing his adversity. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one, or 39 lashes, because that was all that was legal to give someone who was a Roman citizen. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that's with rocks, not... Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only read about the one here. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I'm thinking there is a song there somewhere, right? Danger on every hand. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, apart from all of that stuff. Now listen to this. This is the heart of a man of God. Apart from all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. All this other stuff I'm willing to go through. All of this other, but he said, I do it because of the anxiety, because of the burden I carry for my people, for the people of God, for the churches that God has used us to plant, for the churches as they undergo suffering themselves. That is the greatest burden to me. That is the greatest struggle for me, to bear that burden, and I do it joyfully. I tolerate all of the rest. And finally, he says to the Philippians, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, it's so interesting what he did not say. He did not say, all of my faithfulness, and God has forgotten me. Look where I am. He did not say, I must have sinned horribly to deserve this. He did not say, God must hate me. He did not give the devil 
credit for anything. He didn't say, Satan has won a victory this time. And he did not sing, woe is me, my ministry must be over. How often when we face adversity, do we entertain the thought, maybe even the words, God has abandoned me. God is so unfair. I don't deserve this. I'm trying to live for him, and yet it just gets harder and harder. I, I'm trying to be faithful in my finances. I, I give him my tithes and my offerings diligently, but my financial situation has gotten even more difficult. I've tried to share my faith, but so far nobody's gotten saved that I know of, and it seems like all they want to do is laugh at me. I try to live by your standards, Lord, and yet I'm isolated in my job. No one wants anything to do with me. Adversity after adversity after adversity. Relational, financial, maybe even physical. Paul says, with all of these things, all of the shipwrecks, all of the beatings, all of the, of the rejection that I've experienced. And in prison, once again, I mean, he was a jailbird. And here I am chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And I, this has been going on for over two years here in Rome. And yet, what does he say? Does he lament anything to these Philippians? They are wanting to know how he's doing. And he says, let me tell you how the gospel is doing. That's what counts. That's what matters. He could have appeared to have been hindered, to slow it, for his ministry to have slowed down, to be frustrated, hampered, maybe even stopped. But what does he say? All these things that have happened to me have caused the gospel to advance, not retreat. You know what that word advance is? You don't unless you study Greek. It's a military term. It's only used three times in the New Testament. And the advance, the advance guard, the advance troop were the Corps of Army Engineers who went ahead of the army. And wherever the army was having to go, it was their responsibility. If it was an impenetrable forest, they went ahead and cleared the trees so that the army could advance. When they came to a river, they would build a pontoon bridge so the army could advance. Their job was to be sure that the army of the, of the uh, emperor was not slowed down. So Paul takes that term and he says, let me tell you what, all these problems of mine, all they have done is clear the way for the gospel. It hasn't stopped the gospel. It hasn't slowed down the gospel. 
It hasn't hindered the gospel. It hasn't frustrated or hampered the gospel. Because of all of these things, we have had even greater progress than we could have ever dreamed of. Now, folks, listen to me. Listen to me. This isn't just a message from Paul 2,000 years ago. This is a message for you. Child of God, if you are devoted to the cause of Christ, understand that every problem you experience is there to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through your life. Now, Paul says it's done so in two ways that I'll tell you about. One is in verse 13. What does verse 13 say? So it has become known, it had, because of these things, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now the average person would say, Woe is me. I've got this big, ugly guard, four to six of them chained to me every single day. Paul instead said, they can't get away. I'll just tell them about the gospel all the time. Now, one of the things uh, about this house arrest, not only was he not in a dungeon, but he was allowed to have visitors. And they came, no doubt, by the scores almost every day. There were those who were members of the church at Rome that would come see him. There were church leaders who would come to see him. There were others who had heard of him that wanted to maybe get a chance to meet him and hear about him and hear what he preaches. But all day long, every day, the people were coming and going, and Paul never missed a chance to talk about the gospel and talk about Christ and he never missed a chance to talk to these guards about the same thing. Can you imagine if you had the 8 to 12 shift every day, you knew what was coming every day. Now, had Paul made it his ambition to preach to the imperial guard, the praetorian guard, he did not have enough credit with anybody. He did not have enough uh, pull anywhere to cause that to happen. But God chained him to those guys and he was able to speak to people he would have never ever. The same thing with the governors back in Caesarea and King Agrippa and eventually to the emperor himself. It was his imprisonment, it was his hardship, it was his adversity that opened that door. Not only did he have that door open, but look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, talking about uh, the leaders and, and many of the people in the church at Rome, as well as those who came from other churches, maybe away from Rome to see him. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Those people who are under the threat of Rome and persecution every single day. Those who are under the threat of the Jewish leaders who are ready to take their lives every day. Many of these people that have struggled with their courage, with their boldness, 
after seeing my imprisonment and seeing how God is working through my hardships and adversities, what has it done for them? It has encouraged them to be more bold. They are preaching Christ with greater power than ever before. Now keep in mind, this church in Rome was living in the shadow of an evil emperor's throne. Rome was the capital of the world. It was the center of pagan emperor worship. It was where every Roman citizen had to, at least one time of the year, visit the Department of Motor Vehicles. You know what that was? That was the place where they had to go and declare that Caesar was Lord. Or be killed. Be thrown to the lions. They had to answer to this administration every day. And because of Paul's faithfulness and Paul being there embracing this adversity and letting it open doors right and left, they were willing to say, you know what? If Paul can do that, I can do that. And so they're encouraged. Now he goes on to say, there's a little bit of a problem with this. That's that little paragraph about some preaching Christ and ending. Understand, some of these evidently, we're kind of trying to read between the lines what he's talking about here, and I don't want to read into Scripture, but evidently, there were some in the Roman church that weren't too thrilled about Paul coming to town. Because this church, many of them tried to kind of fly under the radar. Remember that sometime after this, we're going to find that they're going to go underground and worship in the catacombs of Rome. And so they don't necessarily want Rome's attention. Well, guess what? The leading apostle of all of this movement called Christianity has come to town and it, it exposes the church that they are Christians following the same Christ. And some of them don't like this. They, they kind of have a rivalry with each other uh, for, uh, for uh, who's going to lead this church and, and for Paul, they don't agree with him. And so uh, this is a bit of a problem. But understand, it's not a theological problem. Now hear me. They're not having a theological problem that they're getting, uh, that they're unsure about the gospel. They had that problem in Galatia and in Colossae. Paul had to correct that and clarify the gospel. He's not having to clarify the gospel here. This is a matter of personality. It's a matter of different ideas about how the church ought to progress. And so when Paul says, I'm not too worried that they don't all have the same motives for, pre for preaching Christ. Now, motive is important. But he said, I'm not going to get caught up too much in that because what they are preaching is the true gospel. And so that's why he says in verse 18, he said, I'm rejoicing and I do rejoice that whether in pretense or truth or whatever it is or whoever, Christ is being proclaimed. And that's what counts. Now listen, don't leave here and say that it's okay to turn on every so-called Christian broadcasting network and listen to every heretic on TV or on the radio and say because they mention the name of Christ that it's okay what they're preaching. Many of them are preaching heresy. Most of them that you will hear or see are. They are. Those who are preaching a true gospel for the most part 
are doing it in their local churches consistently, week in, week out, day in, day out, under the covers that nobody can see them, not because they're hiding, but because they just have no notoriety. Listen to me. There are small churches all over this country today where some country preacher, some young startup preacher, some old ought-to-be-retired preacher, somebody is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're doing it because they love God. And they, my friend, I believe are the real heroes of the faith. So Paul is just glad. He said, listen, the gospel is being talked about in Rome more than ever before because of my imprisonment here. Okay, let me draw this to a close. I've already made a bit of an application to you. This is a lesson for us. Let me tell you two things that we need to learn from this and be aware of. And let me leave you with one verse that I think is one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. And it's for you. It's for you. Lesson number one. In this passage, we see the unmistakable sovereignty of God at work. Amen? The sovereignty of God. That means that he is not a God sitting on his throne trying to figure out what to do next. He's not even a reactionary God that's having to respond to what the devil does and try to outmaneuver the devil. That doesn't mean, that does not mean uh, that, well, I won't go down that road. God is sovereign. God's purposes, listen to me, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by man's manipulations or by the devil's devices. Everything that appears to be a setback in Paul's ministry was actually a setup for God to do his work. Every stumbling block became a stepping stone for the advancement of the gospel. God's worst is better than the devil's best. Even disappointment is God's appointment. Remember, this one will be on the screen. I've said this before. Listen now. Pain is a platform. Pain is your greatest platform. It is out of Paul's pain and suffering that God gave him an audience even beyond what he could have ever figured out or planned on himself. Your pain is a platform specifically for worship because it is your pain and your adversity that will deepen your worship of God. And it is your pain and your suffering that will expand your witness for Christ. That's why you don't hear Paul lamenting the things he had to go through. God is always, listen to me, child of God, I'm talking to you now. God is always working on a bigger plan than you and I can see. He is a God of surprises. He is unpredictable. 
And he is not only building his kingdom, but listen to me, he is building you and me. He is not only seeking to advance his kingdom, he is seeking to build you and me. That's lesson number one, God's sovereignty. Now here's the one that all you have to do is believe that when that one's hard enough to believe sometimes that God is totally sovereign, but he is. It's all through scripture. But this is the one where you have to decide what you're going to do. Lesson number two, we must become people of a singular passion for Christ and his cause. We must, we need, if we want to see God's kingdom advanced through our lives, if we want to be people that when, when someone says, hey, how you doing? The first thing that comes to mind is, hey, let me tell you how the gospel is doing. If we want to be people used of God in that way, then we need to become people of a singular passion for Christ and his cause. Let me go back about three years prior to this letter. When Paul is leaving Corinth, he's finished his third missionary trip. And I said a while ago that, and some of you think, yeah, it was a great while ago. Uh, and Paul says that I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to have to face hardship. He knew that. He didn't know what, but he knew it would be difficult. He sails a little ways, and they make a stop at a place called Miletus. And there the Ephesian elders come down to speak with Paul and for Paul to give them an update and to pray with Paul. And he tells them, this is the last time you will ever see me. They were deeply sorrowful over that. But this is what Paul knew on his way to Jerusalem. Now listen, knowing this, he could have gone the other way and avoided a lot of hardship. But listen to what he says. This is in Acts chapter 20. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. That means compelled and obligated by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment, that's chains and fetters, and afflictions, that's persecutions, await me. I know that chains and fetters and persecutions await me. But now listen, this is how he deals with that. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Literally he's saying, I make my life of no account, nor of any value to me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus. What is that ministry? to testify, to declare solemnly and earnestly to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul did not, Paul could not detach, disconnect, or even distinguish life 
between his life and his calling to advance the gospel. It was his one thing. He's going to expand upon that in chapter 3 of the book of Philippians. This one thing I do. Christ and his cause was his singular passion. And so because of that, he forged ahead joyfully. Why? Because his life in his estimation was not worth worrying about. All I care about is testifying to the gospel and advancing the message of Christ. All right, close your Bibles and look at me for this final word, for this final verse, and for our prayer. Several years before, about three or four before this, Paul writes to the Romans, perhaps most will agree, the greatest document he ever wrote. His message to the Romans was 16 chapters long, much longer than his message to the Philippians. It was the greatest explanation of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And in the crown jewel, the high point of that letter, Romans chapter 8, a chapter that will call, if you're a child of God, will cause your spirits to soar to heights that perhaps no other scripture can. Paul gives us a verse that we all have heard many times and we claim, or at least we try to quote it and say it, but one that is embedded in the midst of who we are as God's people. Let's put it on the screen. I want you to read it with me, would you? Romans 8, 28. Read it aloud. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Nobody has ever been saved that hasn't been called. So if you're a saved person today, it's because God called you to himself. And if you've truly been born again, I believe you love God. And I love God, sometimes very imperfectly. But this is, other than the hope of heaven itself, I think the greatest promise for all Christians. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All the good things that have happened to you, all the bad things that have happened to you, God is weaving together a story of your life. When it says these things work together for good, the Greek word is synergeo. It's where we get our word synergy. Synergy. 
It's where two things, even two things that are very unrelated, the painful experiences and the blessings, the bad and the good, the adversity and the prosperity of life. God brings those things together. And when he brings them together in your life, he causes them to work together. And synergy, the principle of synergy is this. If this is two and this is two and they come together, you and I were taught, well, that's four. But synergy says it creates something that multiplies in power. That this two and this two, when brought together, adds up to eight, to 20, to 75, to 150. It creates a synergism. The painful adversity you've experienced, maybe that you're experiencing right now, the hardship you're experiencing, that coupled with, with the blessings God has given to you. God is not giving you a hardship to punish you. If your commitment, if your singular cause is to Christ, if your singular passion is for him, then every single thing that touches your life is intended not to make you bitter, but to make you better. It's not intended to stop God's gospel work in your life. It's intended to open doors like you've never experienced before. That your pain becomes a platform for deeper worship of Christ and for greater devotion and expanded witness for him in this world. May we live with that truth. May the gospel advance through adversity, through your life, through mine, and through the Calvary Baptist Church family. Amen? Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the wonderful, amazing promise of it. Help us to grasp it. Father, I know it is, a, it is almost too good to be true. But God, you are too good to be true. You are that good and you are truth. I pray that we will live in the light of that. And may your son's kingdom and his gospel be expanded because of our faithful worship and witness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.